This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. I don't think that most churches are thinking, yeah, we're going to opt out of ministering to these parts of our community. I just think it's like most people who are walking with Jesus who don't notice the people he notices and just to keep on walking without ever giving a thought to it. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and today on our show, I am joined again by Russell Moore and Nicole Martin. Today, we're going to talk about sign language in the end zone, Satan in the state capitol, and the author of our 2023 Book of the Year, Christopher Watkin, joins us to talk about his book. Stay with us. All right, Russell, Nicole, welcome back. So following a 73-yard touchdown, DK Metcalf from the Seattle Seahawks didn't mark the occasion with a dance. Instead, he chose to drop the ball and signed the phrase, standing on business, using American Sign Language. This season, it's been a regular sight for the Seahawks wide receiver to incorporate ASL into his end zone celebrations. What sets this apart, though, is that Metcalf's engagement with ASL isn't just about learning a single phrase for on-field celebrations. He's dedicated months to this, rekindling his interest in the language, which he first explored during a college summer break. During the season, every Tuesday, Metcalf connects via Zoom with Daryl Utley, an ASL instructor based in Knoxville, Tennessee. He views this as an opportunity to challenge himself, to broaden his horizons, but also to connect with a part of the NFL's audience that a lot of people don't think about on a regular basis. It's a remarkable thing to watch. My first reaction was like, huh, that's a weird turn. He's a very charismatic person, Mm -hmm. a very charismatic, funny guy. But then to come to find out that this is a discipline that he's really devoted himself to, I just thought it was a remarkable, interesting story. Yeah. And it's remarkable to me to see some of the responses from the deaf community talking about how you can tell by the way he does it that that he actually knows what he's doing. So I guess if you use the analogy of language, he has the dialect down correctly. And as as one of them in one of the articles I read was quoted saying, a lot of people learn just enough sign language to cuss without getting caught. And this is somebody who really is communicating and that's extraordinary. Yeah. It was fun seeing people respond to his quote-unquote swag. It reminded me actually of the Super Bowl halftime, Rihanna's halftime show, Super Bowl in February this year. Her sign language interpreter was off the chain. You talk about swag. Her name was Justina Miles, and she actually got more attention than Rihanna did because she wasn't just signing in the way that you would see like a press conference. She was moving her whole movements embodied the song. Mm. So it felt 
good to me to see when you centralize something that is typically marginal, it really does add another view. Like you start to think, man, there are people who are in the deaf community who are watching football. Mm -hmm. There are people who are in the deaf community who I may not know or see because I'm more central as a hearing person, but they deserve to have a little swag too. Mm -hmm. It was pretty cool. There's nothing condescending seeming about it. So it doesn't, it, the vibe is not, oh, and now I'm going to include the deaf people who watch. It's it's more like he's joining himself to something that's already cool and important, which is what he's doing. And it's just, you don't notice how rare that is until you see it. There's a great article about all of this in, in The Athletic, which is just consistently doing some of the best sports journalism out there right now. And he talks about it. And one of the things I, I've always liked about Metcalf is he's a little bit eccentric. There's, there's one of my favorite interviews with him is someone was asking him about diet and nutrition. And if you've ever seen Metcalf, the guy is ripped. He is just <laughs> genetically blessed. But there's this great interview with him where they're asking him about his diet and nutrition. And he goes through his day, like I get up in the morning and I eat this and I do this and then I work out and then I lift and then blah, 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 blah. And he goes, and then for dinner, most nights, it's usually candy. <laughs> and the interviewer's like, I'm sorry, what? And he's like, yeah, I'm, I really like candy. I eat a lot of candy for dinner. And they're like, so what do you have? And he's like, usually it's like a pound, two pounds, gummy lifesavers, gummy no. Snickers. Just like a like a 14-year-old boy would eat candy for dinner. DK Metcalf is eating candy for dinner. And what was hilarious was I remember the, when I first saw it was somebody took it and said, actually, he needs to replenish his glycogen supply. So this is why it's actually you know, this whole thing. And I'm like, the dude eats eating gummies, gummy bears for dinner every night. I, this is not, there's no logic for it. Anyway. Yeah, I he's not taking it. a nutritionist recommendation exactly. on that mm -hmm. one. Yeah. He's an eccentric, super athlete and, and an eccentric person, but he's also clearly very brilliant. And I love the, that he talked about curiosity, just becoming curious about this community that he didn't know was out there, that he didn't know felt disconnected from the sport. It was interesting to read that his entry into this was not some justice advocacy march. I'm going to go and bring awareness to this topic. Therefore, he was just the way he described it, he was bored, like he needed a hobby mm -hmm. and decided to go in this direction. For me, in my growing up years, I was very blessed to be in a church, a charismatic, traditional Black church that had a powerful sign language ministry, so much so that people would often watch the sign language interpreters with the sermon more than they would actually watch the sermon. So for me, it felt very natural, but I also realize that's not the case for everyone. I think in terms of the church— one of the reasons that we miss some of this is we don't know who in the body is really equipped to do it. And so I think if we would just ask the question, is there anybody out here who is skilled in ASL or who wants to become skilled in ASL? We might be surprised at how many people that's exactly how God has gifted them to, to build up the rest of the body. Yeah. Or do you know of someone who could come to our church but wouldn't because they are not in the hearing community, they need to have assistance? In my home church, we didn't have an autism ministry. We did have two young boys who were autistic. They would yell out in service. They would rock and stand. And I remember the times that other people would get irritated. And I'm heartbroken mm -hmm. with that memory. But I don't know if we've ever asked 
do you know people? I think families like that either opt out or they try to find a place that already has it built in. It just seems like it's a missed opportunity. Here we have the NFL taking advantage of an opportunity that the church is missing out on in some ways. Yeah, you just look at the stats of how many, and I encounter this a lot with fellow adoptive uh, families who have major sort of medical issues that they're working through. The numbers of unchurched in those families, particularly, it's unbelievably high. And I don't think that most churches are thinking, yeah, we're going to opt out of ministering to these parts of our community. I just think it's like most people who are walking with Jesus who don't notice the people he notices and just to keep on walking without ever giving a thought to it. Mm. So a few years ago, I worked with the International Mission Board doing some documentary podcasting and storytelling about their work around the world. And they identify, they divide the world among what they call affinity groups. There are these cultural, culturally connected affinity groups because of location, language, various things. And there's eight of them. And one of them is the deaf affinity. And I had no idea that was identified as a distinct group culturally in, in various ways. Mm-hmm. But they talk about 80 million people worldwide who are considered culturally deaf. And as a result, there are these affinities across cultures, across the, the world for deaf people that made sense for missionaries who were trying to reach them. And one of the things they talked about is this is actually one of the largest unreached people groups in the world because the church doesn't serve this community well. And some of the evangelistic work they do to the deaf and everything was just really remarkable. And it was the thing that sort of put on the radar for me, wow, there's, this is a whole world yeah. that I'm unfamiliar with. And you can imagine... Part of what's fascinating about it to me is you can imagine how people who have nothing else in common other than the fact that they literally can't hear have a ton in common because they Mm -hmm. can't hear, because they've learned to navigate the world in certain ways. They've learned to experience things in certain ways. And uh, yeah, I went to a deaf church here in the States that was planted by the International Mission Board, planted by this affinity group. And to just see how they gathered, how they did worship, how they did all of these things was really remarkable. And it was also remarkable in, as I talked to the missionary who was leading this, it was remarkable to think about all the different ways that local churches, any local church could make space for this, could invest in ways to reach the deaf. I think it's a wonderful story that it shows up on our radar in this way. And part of the reason I love it is because it shows up because of curiosity, not Mm -hmm. even necessarily because somebody went out of their way to raise awareness, so to speak. I am also reminded through DK Metcalf just how embodied sign language is in Bible translation to your point, one of the most unreached people groups. And you go to the Museum of the Bible, on the top shelf, you see all of the Bibles of languages that are still to be translated, and the majority of them are for deaf communities. So you think, but they can see, they can read, why can't our translations be enough? But sign language is embodied. So when you see DK Metcalf and Justina Miles or others who are doing sign language, there's a bodily interpretation that makes things come alive. And that's why so much of Bible translation for deaf communities is video-based because they want to embody it. It just, this is here, my little Advent kind of voice in the back of my mind. This is what it means that our whole gospel is embodied. It's not just what we do by reading with our eyes. It's like, how the words show up in the way that we talk and speak. The, the other thing that I couldn't help but think about when reading 
DK Metcalf story was actually a very different situation, very different story, is the story of DeAndre Hopkins and his mom. So DeAndre Hopkins, wide receiver for the Texans, for that reason, a villain in my book, but not actually a villain in real life. Every time he scores a touchdown, he runs to the stands and gives the football to his mom. And his mom is blind. His mom was blinded. There was a there was an incident years ago where she was attacked and a woman threw, I believe it, she threw lye in her face and she mm. lost most of her vision almost immediately and has pretty much lost all of it ever since. But it's another one of these stories about this athlete who... First of all, he didn't set out to raise awareness of anything. He's just giving the football to his mom so she knows he scored, though she says she always knows when it's him. But it shows these connections, again, that there are people in our world who live at the margins, but they're not actually at the margins. These are our neighbors. These are our moms. These are our friends. These are people who can be reached and whose stories ought to be told. And I, I love when that happens. It's one of the things that I think the, the greatest thing about sports is the way that those kinds of human dramas and that kind of affection comes to the surface mm-hmm. through the game. She made a statement in one of the interviews saying that sometimes in her world of not being able to see, she feels so alone. And it strikes me again, how many people are feeling alone? And when they see some reference to somebody who acknowledges someone else in their condition, it can make them feel seen. These are the reminders and signposts that God gives us to ask who are the people that we're not seeing or ministering to. And I've found a lot of it happens the second way we talked about rather than the first. It's not so much people get involved because of curiosity, although that's great when they do. Usually it's because they have a relationship with somebody and they know there's a special place for somebody with, as I have in my family, an autistic spectrum person. You then think about that a lot and think, oh, that's not going to be the right way to talk to people who are on the spectrum or what have you. And I think that there's something really good about that, those relationships, like those who took their friend and lowered him down through the roof, they knew him. And I I think there's something to that. And if we just spent some time asking, wait, we know we're forgetting some people, but we don't know who they are. And we just sat with that for a while. Maybe we'd see things we don't see now. No, that's really well put. All right, we will be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. The Satanic Temple of Iowa, 
which I was not aware there was a satanic temple in Iowa, but maybe there's one in all 50 states. They placed, with state permission, an altar on the floor of the Iowa State Capitol in the lobby. It displays what are described online as the seven fundamental tenets of Satanism, including the statement that the freedoms of others should be respected, including the freedom to offend. Christians have reacted in a variety of ways to all of this. And Russell, you wrote about this week for your newsletter. What do you think about all this? I think that sometimes we think, oh, this is a classic kind of religious liberty question about whether or not there are going to be people excluded from expressing their faith in the public square. That's really not what's going on here. I think a lot of us think of the Satanic Temple and the Church of Satan and those kinds of places as places that believe in the devil and who worship the devil the way that we worship God, that's actually not what it is, especially with these groups who want to put up displays in places. It's usually more about eliciting the outrage. So it's like the atheist groups that will do the, we're the church of the flying spaghetti monster in order to say, we're showing you how silly it is. And in most cases, and this happened in Oklahoma too, putting up these goat-headed gods are a way of saying, this is why having any sort of expression, recognition of Christmas or Hanukkah or Diwali or something like that is wrong. And so that's just a very different category. And it reminds me, when I think about how these satanic groups don't really believe in Satan, what do they believe in? They believe in strength, they say. They believe in doing what you will. And that's what in what I wrote, I'm concerned about is that kind of Satanism. Because most people rightly are repulsed by a goat-headed being. I cannot imagine very many people walking through the state capitol. And Clarissa Mall on our team was talking beforehand about how, imagine these school groups going through the capitol, and here's this thing. Most people aren't going to be drawn to that, to, oh, wow, let me explore this more. It's really cool. But there's a kind of Christianity that can do what that goat being is doing, which is the goat being is just a way to make a culture war point and to own the Christians. And I think we can do that with anything. It's literally what Jesus calls Satan worship. You had a statement in your newsletter that for me just really summed it up, something along the lines of, um, don't be afraid of the devils that you see, be afraid of the ones that you don't see. And it does make me think about teachable moments for children because this is what our faith is about. It is not about living in a world where everything speaks of the cross and everybody's talking about Jesus. It is about standing on what you believe when you see these images and these visions in front of us. That statement made me think, man, here we are getting upset about something we see. What are the evils that we don't see that are right in our faces. And why do we become so complacent with that evil and then so upset about the visibility in front of us that really isn't about us at all, other than trying to stir us up? And to be clear, I wouldn't allow that Satan statue into the Iowa State Capitol if I were making the decisions precisely because publicity stunts are not religions. And so I wouldn't have allowed that. And I'm as close to a religious liberty absolutist as one can get. But 
it ought to remind us, I was mentioning to you, Nicole, before we came on the air, my son was describing some homeschooling group in another place. And he said, they're not like we homeschool. They're the kind of homeschoolers who don't allow their kids to say devil's food cake, but we'll trust them with an AR-15. And usually usually it's not quite that extreme, but I get the point. There can be a way of being really worried about the devil externally in a way that he so rarely manifests himself. And if you remember what in Screwtape Letters, what Screwtape says to, to Wormwood, there are times and places where the best thing we can do is to be visible and to terrify people. But in this kind of a time, it's to be concealed and uh, to allow people to follow that path without even knowing that they're doing it. And if you can get people to embrace the ways of the devil while thinking they're following Jesus, that's the really dangerous thing. I'm with you on the conceptual goofiness of the whole Church of Satan project, because it's like you said, this thing does not exist because of sincerely held beliefs about spirituality, metaphysics, God, the devil, any of that stuff. It's ultimately a mockery of everyone else who does it. The thing I kept thinking about when I saw the display was contemporary art. The famous examples that always come to mind are Duchamp's fountain. So Duchamp took a urinal and signed it and called it fountain. And today it's in the, I think it's in MoMA in New York. It might be in the Tate Modern. I can't remember. Or like Jeff Koons, who's still alive and is still doing some of this stuff. Like Jeff Koons became famous for a series of artworks in the 1980s where he would go to the Hoover vacuum factory and he would get the first three of the new vacuums right when they came off of the assembly line. He called them virgins and he'd put them in a hermetically sealed box and light them and then display them in a gallery. And, and and it was the same, particularly with Coons. It was the same thing. The fundamental idea here is that art is nonsense, that the things that artists do to create beautiful things, they're all pointless anymore because now we have all this technology that can create beautiful images and all of that. So the whole idea was like, we're just going to mock the entire thing. And mm-hmm. oh, by the way, get rich beyond imagination Mm -hmm. as we do it, because I'm going to take these Hoover vacuums that he probably paid $39 a piece for in 1981 or 82 and sell them for six figures at a gallery in Chelsea in New York. And to me, there's something about this idea that in the name of tolerance, we create the space for the satanic display, which is ultimately a mockery, not just of Christianity, but of religious belief in general. It's like being the gallery owners in the 1980s that put Jeff Koon's work on the wall and, and took it seriously. I think one of the things they're trying to do is remember when the people uh, wrote an article for a scientific journal with a postmodern deconstructionist view of quantum physics that was just gobbledygook jargon intentionally. It was just ridiculous stuff taking what people do in the fringes of postmodernism to English literature and doing that with science. And it was in the journal. And only then did they say, see, we did this fake article and they accepted it 
because this stuff is nonsense. It's all nonsense. And that's a similar thing to what uh, these sorts of groups are, are doing to say, see, if you can end up with us with our goat head here, that means that you really shouldn't have any kind of recognition of anything that's ultimately tied to religion. And those, uh, we all, we constantly, not as much now, had a lot of fights over whether or not it's the establishment of a religion for a community to recognize the fact that there's Christmas or Hanukkah going on. I don't think it is in most cases, but that's the point that's trying to be made. And those spaces aren't for making points. There's a place for that. And there's a place for free speech and for making a point, but that's not what's going on there. I think there's a limit even in my Christian understanding of what is a quote-unquote fair display. And so I'm trying to unpack that because on one hand, I think, all right, if Christians wouldn't get so riled up about this, would there even be a display? There is a display because there is a faction of our population that on Twitter and on every social media Mm -hmm. I've seen comes off with Again, stupid things. You just, you're not making sense. Even in reading responses to uh, John Dunwell's posts, the responses that Christians were giving were so poor, just so poor. The man had to keep repeating, again, I am a Christian and I serve the needs of all people in our state. And honestly, there's a faction of Christians that are going to get upset and say stupid things just because they have the opportunity to do so. And I'm a little I'm a little concerned about that. And that's the point. That's the point behind a lot of these stunts. You think about it with, remember that video that Lil Nas X did a year or so ago where he's he has the devil there making out with the devil or whatever. And that is obviously in order to get a shock response from people. And we often play right into it. Yeah, he uh, since did a Jesus thing and people were mad too. He gets great traction when people are mad. Yeah, and back in the day, Madonna would do this a lot. Take the Catholic imagery and the whole point of it is, aren't we naughty? We're doing things we shouldn't be doing. And yeah, it's dumb. And I think I think this is one of those things where you say, okay, you're, you're not going to put your goat head in the Capitol because you're not actually a religious group. But also, you're not going to get the response from us that you want. It's like people, I've had friends drive me crazy because they'll talk to me about engaging with trolls on some social media outlet, trying to reason with them about something. That's exactly what they're trying to do is to just get a response and to do more and more extreme things to get a response. Uh, and as uh, Warren Cole Smith uh, said to me yesterday in a, a thing we were doing that his son would always say, if you play stupid games, you'll win stupid prizes. <laughs> That's <laughs> well true said. enough. Yeah. There's a practical kind of civic element to this that I think matters as well. When you're running an art gallery and you hang a vacuum cleaner on the wall because this artist says this is proof that art and beauty doesn't matter. You're endorsing that in a weird way, right? Mm-hmm. Like to a certain extent you're endorsing that and you're undermining the the sort of credibility and the, the argument for what you do. And the reason I keep thinking about this with this story is because religious displays in Capitol buildings, courthouses, different places, you can take them or leave them. But fundamentally the reason people argue for them oftentimes is because 
the religions that are usually being displayed, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, other religions that are displayed, even in U.S., there's symbolism from other religions in U.S. courthouses. That stuff's often there because those religions provided a, a sense of morality and meaning and ethics that are the fundamental building blocks mm. of civilization mm. and law. And it's just interesting to me to – and obviously, like, probably – this whole Iowa, anybody gets to display something if you fill out the, the form and get the permit thing is not is not built this way and is not thinking this way. But man, like space matters, symbols matter, all this kind of stuff matters. And to me, when you understand that the Church of Satan exists to be a, a mockery of all things moral and ethical, not just a mockery of all things Christian and religious, there's a fundamentally self-destructive thing going on when we say, yeah, we'll make space for this in the lobby of the Capitol, because it's a middle finger to what you do. Every right has limits. And you think about even this display, they wouldn't allow them to have an actual goat's head, I guess, because (laughs) of animal cruelty. But I do think that it's not a violation of religious freedom to say a scary goat figure with the way that children are going to react to that in terror at Christmas probably isn't what we want to do. I just don't think that that really is fitting into the religious freedom space. Well, and I think that goes back to this thing that we see all the time, which is the cowardice of people in positions of power making conscientious moral judgments that it's an easier judgment to go, anything goes, I don't want to be the one who tells somebody no, I don't want to be the one who mocks somebody's religion or hinders somebody's freedom of expression or whatever. So we just got to allow for the satanic goat head for a few weeks here and just take your kids around the stairs the other way. One of the analogs to this is often there will be state governments will put up these signs, this mile of highway is being taken care of by the Lions Club or the Kiwanis Club or whatever. They're not endorsing those groups. They're announcing that those groups are doing this. And there have been a couple cases where they had to think, what do we do when the Ku Klux Klan wants to take care of that mile of highway? And are we going to put that up? No. So there are some, we do know there are some limits to what is there without saying that we're going to violate the free speech of the Ku Klux Klan or by saying that somehow that means that we're endorsing everything that the vegetarian club is doing. It's just there, there are some lines. Mike, to your point about the vacuum cleaner and the art show, I was thinking, I'm actually not that bothered by the vacuum cleaner in the art show because I would think the purpose of that space is to cultivate conversation about art. And if there's a piece in there that makes you question art altogether, how amazing is that to add to the conversation? But clearly, I think I'm more open to these kinds of displays in Capitol buildings, not because they reinforce the values of the country. I think that is a very valid point. And I think if they're going to revisit this policy, they definitely need to say something along those lines that we will allow for groups that have some level of value system that aligns with our country, our state, our our area. But I do think there is a place to say I'm actually okay with these kinds of things because they spark the conversations that we should have been having in the church a whole long time ago. If your 
this is me. If my kids are seeing a satanic display for the very first time because they did a field trip at the Capitol Center, I'm feeling like I haven't done my job. Not because I haven't exposed <laughs> them to satanic worship. You haven't in taken the house. them to satanic worship. <laughs> <laughs> I'm you going, Nicole. <laughs> Do a better job of goat heads at Christmas time. If those but kids haven't been in a pentagram of blood before vacation Bible school. Exactly. But it does make me think, though, this is why apologetics matter in children's yeah. church. This is why it's important to teach your children that there is good and there is evil in the world. This is why I pray over my kids, because I have no idea what they're going to face when they go out there. But I do want them to have a strong biblical understanding of what is right, so that they'll be able to look at something and say, now that is wrong. I think, again, I'm looking at this on from the landscape of discipleship and thinking, all right, pastors, are you going to get up and blast the politicians who had the nerve to not to allow something like this? Or are you going to get up and teach your congregation these are the last days? And to Russell's earlier point, let's assess the evil that we don't see. I think this is a wonderful teachable moment. I think of Peter when at Caesarea Philippi, he is the one who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Nobody else is talking. And then right after that, when Jesus starts talking about being arrested, Peter says, no, that's never going to happen. You, we're, we're not going to allow your enemies to uh, arrest you, which is sounds like a perfectly reasonable thing to say. Most of us would say that to our friends. We're, we've got your back. This isn't going to happen. And Jesus's response is, get back, Satan. It's a really subtle form of where Peter thinks he's offering service to Christ, but actually Jesus says you're setting your mind on the things of man and not on the things of God. That's that's where I think most of us aren't tempted to arrange goat heads on, on the wall around us, but a lot of us are tempted to do that. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we know and what to, to get clear, Nicole for Christmas, and that's a vacuum cleaner <laughs> and a frame. I'm already thinking go-head ornaments. <laughs> Absolutely uh, off. <laughs> Look at it, children. Look at it and know I mean, that this is not the Lord. I love that your instinct is to go from here to get her a vacuum cleaner to put on the wall, and she's going, yeah, I need to go buy some goat-head ornaments for my children. That is terrible. They All told right. us this is where Harry Potter was going to lead. <laughs> we didn't amazing. take the warning. While we're doing Christmas season takes, I think we need to do a thumbs up, thumbs down from the bulletin panel. Not an official one. We speak as individuals, not on behalf of Christianity today. But a thumbs up, thumbs down on the elf on the shelf. <gasps> thumbs up. Thumbs down. Oh. What? Ooh. Oh, my gosh. I have a full theological understanding of why this matters. I, and mm-hmm. I have a full theological understanding of why it doesn't. Okay, I want to hear. I, I, I thought this was going to happen. Nicole Martin, give us your 30 seconds on the theology of the elf on the shelf. Inspiring wonder. The elf is in the house, but you just don't know where. And my kids wake up with such joy. They cannot wait to see where the elf is going to appear. I love it because it reminds me, man, I need to be looking for God this way. I need to be waking up with this kind of wonder. I know God is near. I just don't know where, and I want to see where God is going to show up. Yeah, and that's fine. That's fine. Uh, that's fine. <laughs> my, my problem with the elf on the shelf is when it's used in an inquisitorial kind of way, the elf on the shelf is watching you. That, that's where I say, ah, no. Let's... That's a good point. Now, where I am, Mike, really against the flow when it comes to Christmas is that I'm thumbs up on the little drummer boy. 
And that's a rare place to be, but I can t- stand my ground on Little Drummer. I'm thumbs up on my Mariah Carey's song. So. I am too. Oh, I know Mike is thumbs down on that. <laughs> Mike, you didn't give your thumbs up, thumbs down on the Elf on the Shelf. As a as a closet Lutheran who believes very staunchly in the gospel of grace and rejects good works, I have nothing but loathing for the Elf on the Shelf what? and his judgmental what? little heart. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Who cares? Keeps the kids good for a little bit. <laughs> you guys don't have young kids. That's the problem. We need to ask this question 10 years ago. I, and then 10 years ago, that. 10 years ago, I was I had 95 theses on the elf on the shelf and how oh evil he was. Oh my gosh. And uh, yeah, so. Yeah, anyway. All right, we will be right back. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. All right, we are back, and joining us for this next segment is the author of Christianity Today's Book of the Year, Christopher Watkin. Christopher, welcome to The Bulletin. It's lovely to be with you. You're the author of Biblical Critical Theory. Jonah Goldberg, one of my favorite podcasters, always asks this question when he has authors on his show, gives him a chance to shill for a second. What's your book about? It's about how the Bible makes sense of the world in which we live in a richer and deeper way than that world can make sense of itself. So I have to ask, Christopher, first of all, your book really is fantastic. And I think it is a difficult undertaking to try and make sense of the world, according to the Bible, in this day and age. And I wonder, the title of your book, did you intentionally go the route of something that sounded so close to critical race theory? It's a really interesting question, Nicole. The, the title grew on me. So I was brainstorming with the publishers and threw out loads of titles. And they said, this one looks really good. And I said, oh, okay, that's, we'll run with that. But over time, I'm really glad we chose it. Because what one thing the book is trying to do is reclaim the idea of taking a critical stance towards society for the Christian tradition, if you like. So if you think about the Old Testament prophets and the way in which they remorselessly critiqued Israel and Judah. Mm-hmm. And the, so the idea of there being a critique of society within society has really rich, deep biblical roots. Think of Jesus with the Pharisees and the way in yeah. which his, his greatest invective, if you like, is turned inwards on God's people. And I came across an argument by an Augustine scholar called Charles Matthews, and he said, the first time you ever see the whole of a society being critiqued in the history of the Western tradition is Augustine's city of God. Now, other people have said negative things about bits of society before, but a whole society, the whole of late Roman society. And if that's true, and I think it is, then the origin of cultural critique, as we understand it today, has profoundly Christian roots in the Bible and in the Christian tradition. And I think there's also a stronger argument that you can make, and this might seem a bit controversial, but I'll say it anyway. (laughs) I don't think you can do 
what critical theory does properly without something very close to a biblical basis. And the reason is that in order to critique society with any weight, you need something to measure it against. In order to know what we're doing wrong, you need a, a measure of what's right. And you can't simply draw that measure out of what there is, out of the status quo. You need what the Frankfurt School critical theorist Theodore Adorno calls a standpoint of redemption. You need somewhere to stand to see what things look like when they're working well in order to know what's not working well. Um, and now he's not a Christian, but he still uses this theological language really interestingly of a standpoint of redemption because that is what you need. You need to know what the world looks like when it's put right in a way that's more than this feels good to me or I have an intuition that this is what it's like when it's right. That's what the Bible gives you. One of the things, Christopher, that I think is effective about your book is like the city of God, there's critique but without despair. When you think of city of God, Roman empire is fallen and there's what looks like complete chaos and Augustine is giving this, everything's not shaken here. And I think this is a lot of what your book does, which is to instill confidence in people. Wait, we actually do have a story that makes sense of this. And I think the key there, Russell, is that it's a bigger story, isn't it? Whatever's happening in the world at any particular point, the, the biblical story is bigger and richer and deeper than that. And I guess we have a lot to learn in our relatively comfortable countries from, from those who are going through real deep hardship. You hear stories of people who are killed, martyred for their faith today, who face that with great poise, with great peace and dignity, because it really sharpens up your thinking, doesn't it, when you're going to die? You think, no, actually, the, the biblical story is a lot bigger than this. I can be killed, and that's not the biggest thing that's going to happen to me. Uh, there's a deeper reality. And perhaps that's something that in more comfortable societies, it's easier to lose sight of than when we're at the pointy end of um, persecution. The book's been out for several months now. I'm curious, has there been a response to the book that you found particularly surprising or responses or reviews or attitudes towards the book that you didn't expect? The most wonderful thing about the whole experience is the emails that I get from people. One example, there, there was such a, I almost cried with my wife reading this email. There, there was someone who'd gone through an, an operation and they were recovering and they were bedbound. And they said, someone gave me your book and I didn't want to read it because it's too long and who wants to read a book that, that's that long? But anyway, I was in bed, so what could I do? And I read it and she said something to the effect of it rekindled my love for Jesus. And my mm. wife and I said at that point, that's the ball game. That's, yeah. that, that's it. Um, and so that's been the most treasured aspect of the response. If, if the book can help people fall in love with Jesus just a little bit more, then I'm done. What I would love to happen is whether people agree with the book or not, for them to catch a vision for the bigger project that I would love it to be part of, which is elaborating a, a robust biblical critical and social theory for our day. And, and I think that has to be something that the church as a whole does. No one particular corner of Christianity can do that. And no one particular cultural expression of Christianity can do that either. 
And so if the book can be a brick in a bigger wall, and even if people who read the book and, and think that my particular brick in that wall is misguided, put another brick in the wall, then that's what I'm after. So how do you suggest that cultures navigate what in some ways have been cultural moments that some would co-opt for Christian moments? For example, in the U.S., it may be the election. There, there will be some who will say, my candidate becoming president is the biblical moment of our time, and we need to see this as part of God's will, God's advancing of the kingdom. Is there ever a time when applying that critical biblical theory to culture becomes tenuous or dangerous? And then how do we create the guardrails so that we know what is clearer, this is God's hand, and what to say, yeah, this is part of the Bible, but it's not the quote-unquote good part. How do we make sense of those things? I think you put your finger, Nicole, on something that's really crucial about the way that we do religion today. It's something that Bonhoeffer talks about quite a bit and a contemporary theologian called William Kavanagh as well. And they say that our sense of ultimate things and of the holy has migrated for a lot of us away from the Bible and into things like politics. So we treat politics with a biblical weight now. So every four years we have the apocalypse and there's a final judgment. <laughs> and if my side get in, then it's heaven. And if the other side get in, then it's hell. And it can't take that weight. That the political system can do some things, okay, but it can't take the weight of salvation. It's like a marriage. You know, if I try to find my salvation in my wife, I will crush her and I will disappoint myself. And if I try to find my salvation in the political system, then I will crush the system in the sense that it, I'm asking it to do something it can't do. And then when it can't do it, I'm going to be really frustrated and throw my toys out of the pram. But I shouldn't have been asking it to do that thing in the first place. And I suppose, again, it goes back to this idea of the bigger story, doesn't it? Keeping, if you like, keep the big thing, keep the Bible as the overarching framing story. Because God can take that weight. He's the only one, isn't he, who can take the weight. I can put the whole weight of all my hopes and fears and dreams and nightmares on his shoulders. And he did take those to the cross, didn't he? In his death, he bore that weight that I can't bear, that the political system can't bear, that my wife can't bear. And he rose again to give me hope. And if I don't, if I don't put that weight there, if I put that weight on the political system, if I put that weight on my marriage, if I put that weight on myself, I'll destroy myself. Professor Watkin, the, the books of the year, Christianity Today, books of the year. The first one that I can see as a book of the year was Philip Yancey's Disappointment with God. And I think there are some people who, when they see the book of the year, they think, okay, this is something I can take and apply to my life. And some people might be intimidated by the sheer size of, of this book and think that's not really for me, it's only for scholars. I wonder if you would agree with me that somebody could open the book at certain points of interest to them and still profit from it, even if they don't read the whole thing. I hope so. I certainly wrote it with that intention. I didn't write it like a, a big, heavy academic book. It just mm -hmm. happens to be long because the Bible's long. <laughs> There's lots of Bible <laughs> to talk about. But the tone of it is not intended to be some filled with all Greek and Latin words and 
anything like that. I, I tell some funny stories along the way. And one thing that I've heard, especially from pastors, is that they found that rather than reading it from cover to cover, they've just dipped into particular chapters when they're preaching on a particular part of the Bible or when they want to know more about a particular part of the Bible. And they found profit in it that way. So I certainly don't think it's something that you have to begin at page one and end up at page whatever it is, 670-odd. You can dip in, definitely. Christopher, congratulations on the award and on, on writing the thing. 656 pages. Silly question, but worthwhile question, I think. Your next book, longer or shorter? <laughs> Whatever it's about, it's going to be a lot shorter, I assure you. <laughs> no, you say now. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh. Great. Christopher, thank you so much for joining us on The Bulletin. We're so thrilled to have you. And listeners who want to hear more, actually, Chris, you were on Russell Moore's podcast earlier this year when the book first came out. So we can link to that as well if they want to hear a further conversation. Or you can get the book wherever fine books are sold. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. It's produced by Clarissa Mall and Matt Stevens. Post-production by TJ Hester. Our art for this episode is by Rick Shooks, music by Dan Phelps, and social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.